Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Church. Warm welcome to you if you wouldn't normally find yourself here on a Sunday. It's great to have you visiting us. Uh, some things Christians and our secular culture agree on, we're very similar on. Other things we're very different. And sexuality is one obvious difference. Uh, we're talking about sex today, especially what to do when sex goes wrong. What to do when sex is immoral or harmful. And there's obvious disagreement between our culture and Christians in this area. And what our culture celebrates and calls liberating, the Bible calls immoral, wrong, and harmful. And Christians who stand by the Bible's teaching and people who stand by our culture's teaching are drifting further and further apart. Uh, But it's worth recognizing, though, even our secular culture agrees that sex can be immoral. Uh, Sex can be wrong, sex can be harmful. Like when one partner cheats on another partner. That's wrong in our culture. Uh, When someone has sex without consent, that's massively wrong. When someone is the victim of a sex crime and they're blamed as if they were asking for it, as if it was their fault, that's incredibly wrong. And when sex involves children, that's outrageously wrong. Our culture has some clearly defined lines of what's good and what's not, what's immoral and what's moral when it comes to sexuality. Uh, The difference is not that the Bible has lines, but our culture has none. The difference is where the lines are drawn and why they're drawn there. And the part of the Bible that we're looking at, heads up, this is pretty confronting. Uh, This is a pretty heavy part of the Bible. Um, The reality is that sexual sin happens, sexual mistakes happen, and it brings pain and confusion and shame, and we've all been impacted by that. And the part of the Bible that we're looking at, on first read, it feels pretty awful and revolting. I don't know if you had that sensation as Adam was just reading that out for us. Um, I've been on an emotional roller coaster this week, knowing I've got to get up and talk about this. uh, And I'm trying to wrestle with it and work out, how is this good? Like, this this is horrific, the things that this is describing. How is this a good thing for us or for ancient Israel? Uh, And I'm not sure I understand everything that's going on here. Uh, And so I'll try my best. I'll try my best to shed some light on it. But you know what I'm confident of? I'm confident that this will be good for us. I'm confident this will be good for us, whether you're a Christian or whether you're exploring Christianity. Because buried in the pain and the confusion and the shame of sex in our world, buried in the shock of this part of the Bible, is some extraordinary news that is freeing and comforting, and cleansing, and profoundly good. God has a better story for life, and love, and sex, and marriage than what our culture has to offer. And here, we're going to see it, some of it. And here in this part of the Bible, God tells ancient Israel how to limit the damage when there is sexual immorality. And there's four cases here of sex gone bad. Uh, And this is case law, the part of the Bible that we're looking at. A case law, you got a law, and then you have cases where you apply that law to particular situations. Uh, The same thing happens now in our courtrooms. Judges decide, how how do I apply that law to a new situation? And you come up with a new case. Um, So I'm sure you know the case of Marbo, who with others went to the high court and won, and native land title was inserted into Australian law. 
And those First Nation people were given land, given back land that was taken during European settlement. And based on Mabo's case, other First Nations people have successfully argued for their rights to their own land. And if you don't know the details of the Mabo case, I'm sure you know the vibe of the thing. Um, But here... God has got four cases, four cases to limit the damage with their sexual immorality. It's not every case. This is a bit of a stumbling block for me as I was looking through this, because I kept reading it going, okay, I get it for that situation, but what about this situation? And what happens if this? And what about when that happens? Uh, we don't get every case. It's not every case. It's more like the two ends of the spectrum, and from the two ends, you can deduce what happens in the middle. Um, But here's my plan. Here's where we're going. I'm going to try and answer these four questions. What does each case mean? Why did God give this to ancient Israel? Why is God's design so different to our cultures? And what is God's extraordinary news? That's where we're going. What is God's extraordinary, comforting, cleansing, freeing, profoundly good news? So why don't I pray as we dive into this and ask God to help us. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you that you want us to know you. Uh, You want us to discover your design for life. We pray as we look at this part of the Bible that is really confronting and pretty heavy, uh, a very serious topic. Um, We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us, uh, that you would speak to us, that you'd comfort us, that you'd help us to hear the good that's buried in some shocking words here. Uh, And that's buried in the pain and the shame and the confusion of this topic. Amen. All right, let's have a look at the scenarios. Verse 13, come have a look with me. Deuteronomy 22, verse 13. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was a virgin. Her father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin, but here is the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the young woman's father, because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her, divorce her as long as he lives. Um, my immediate thought is as if she would want to stay married to him. Uh, but let's go slow. Let's see what this is talking about. I think the situation here is that a man and a woman have gotten married. And on their wedding night, they've had sex. And then he has tried to ditch his new wife by accusing her of sleeping around and having sex before marriage. So they don't have to stay married. And I think the key to his motive is in verse 13. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name. Uh, he, he's found something about her that he dislikes, so he's trying to break off this marriage. And the wife's reputation is at stake and her parents' reputation is at stake. And so the parents can contest this false accusation. I look at verse 15. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders of the gate proof that she was a virgin. Uh, Verse 17, he slandered her, said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin, but here is the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town. Um, Without going into too many details, uh, this is, uh, you know, this is a time 
it's about three and a half thousand years ago. Uh, this is a time long before tampons and contraceptives. And yes, I am feeling awkward right now. Uh, but at this time, women, when women usually, uh, the first time that they had sex, that would usually be when a layer of tissue would break and there would be a bit of bleeding. And so the parents are showing that cloth from the wedding night that has that blood on it to prove that she hasn't had sex beforehand, uh, that she's been falsely accused. And the result is that the husband is fined 100 shekels which are of silver, which I think is about $1,000, and he has to give it to the father that he's insulted, and he has to stay married to this woman. And there are so many questions that this raises for us, uh, raises for me, like what if there is no blood there the first time they have sex? And what about the man who has sex before marriage, feels like a double standard going on here. And, and what's with this being so patriarchal and just so awkwardly public as well? Uh, so many what if and what happens when questions that spring from this. But like I said, this is one case, not every case. But we see the other end of the spectrum in verse 20. Look at verse 20. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found... She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. Uh, This woman has had sex before marriage. She's not a virgin. And I think the emphasis is if the charge is true. So I think what we've got here is two clear ends of the spectrum, but not all the gray in between. So you've got a husband who's clearly trying to ditch his new wife after sleeping with her at one end of the spectrum. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have a wife who has sex before marriage, a wife who's cheated on him before marriage. And we're told, ancient Israel is told to kill her by stoning her until she dies to purge the evil, which feels like an insane overreaction. And I'll share more about that in a bit. But come to the second scenario. Here's the second scenario. If this works. Oh, too far. There we go. Uh, A man has sex with a married woman. So have a look with me in verse 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Uh, So here's a case of adultery. A man has sex with a married woman. And it actually answers one of our earlier questions. There's not a double standard here because if a man has sex before he's married, he's treated the same as the woman in the previous scenario. He's killed and so is the married woman. Uh, So that's if a man has sex with a married woman. What about if he has sex with a woman who's not married? Well, that's the next scenario. Verse 23. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her. Um, That pledged to be married thing uh, is is a kind of different cultural thing to what we do in Australia. Pledged to be married is kind of like a really long engagement uh, in a culture of arranged marriages. So the father would choose someone for his daughter to marry and he would announce it and announced that when this girl and this guy became adults, they would get married, and everybody knows that these two people are spoken for, and they're pledged to be married. They're engaged, but it's not like a six-month engagement. It's more like a five to ten-year engagement, pledge thing. Here's what's happening, verse 23. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and spoon them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, 
and the man because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. But if out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. For the man found the young woman out in the country, and though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. Uh, I think, again, we've got two clear ends of the spectrum. And the difference is whether the woman consents or not, whether she's willing or not. But it's described in a way that's really strange to our ears, uh, whether she screams uh, there's lots of great promotion at the moment about informed consent. Uh, I think it's a really a good thing uh, that no means no, and to see the power imbalance that can happen in a relationship. And don't assume that there's consent. Ask for it and ask multiple times if the person consents. And see that a person may say yes and still be unwilling because instead of having a fight or flight response, they've got a freeze response to it. Um, and with, that's really great. I think, in our culture. And with all that promotion, this looks like it's dangerously open to abuse. But I think there's two clues here to show that it's about willingness and consent. Uh, the, different, the first one is the difference in the language. So look a little bit closer at it. Verse 23, if a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her. And then verse 25, but if out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her sleeping with versus raping, I think, points to willingness or not being willing. And the second thing, the second clue is the the scream element. Um, in a town, when she doesn't scream, I think that's meant to show her willingness that she's you know, consenting to this relationship. When she does scream in the country, no one is there to help. Obviously, she's unwilling, which again, just raises so many questions and red flags for us. Um, but what have we seen so far? A man who has sex with a woman who's married, a man who has sex with a woman who's pledged to be married, a man who... Uh, so these ones here, a husband tries to ditch his new wife or the wife cheats on a husband before marriage. Then a man has sex with a willing married woman, a man has sex with a pledged woman. What about a woman who's not pledged? Well, that's the last scenario, and I find this one the most disturbing of all. Look at verse 28. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Uh, she has no marriage arranged. She's not pledged. She's not engaged. And the man who rapes her must marry her. Uh, and the 50 shekels of silver, I think that's the bride price. You know, in a culture of arranged marriages, you give like five camels or whatever. There's 50 shekels to make this an official marriage. Uh, and I can't help but think, how is this going to be good for the woman? Um, if he, this man has raped her, how likely is it that he'll care for her in marriage? But there's the four cases. Um, here's these four cases and what each of them mean. Second question, though. Why did God give this to ancient Israel? Why? Like, what is this all about? Why did God give this to ancient Israel? I think it's partly because God is kind enough to tell us his design for human sexuality and for human sex. Um, have you ever bought a new appliance, new device, new bit of flat pack furniture, and you go to set it up, 
but it doesn't make any sense. You, you know, you're trying to work out how to do it. You can't figure it out. What do you do? You look at the manual, or more likely you look it up on YouTube, or you, you know, look at a forum, and you can get it to work because the instructions tell you how it's designed, how it's meant to work. What would you do if there was no manual, though? If you bought something and it was really obvious somebody had designed it, but they didn't tell anyone how to use it. They didn't write a manual. They didn't tell anybody how to use the thing they'd made, and no one had been able to figure it out. What would you do? You'd probably send it back for a refund. Or you could try and come up with your own way to use it. You could guess how it was meant to work. You could experiment and see if you could get it to work for you. Now, what would you do if the thing you were trying to figure out was human sexuality? Which is a billion times more important than flat-packed furniture, even if it is from Ikea. That is the situation we would be in if God was not so very kind. Because God is kind enough to tell us his design for marriage. More than that, actually, God is so kind enough that he even has a design for marriage. He has a design for human sexuality. And he tells us in the Bible his design for human sexuality. And when we look at the Bible, we see what sex is for and how to express it or not express it in a way that leads people to thrive. And God's design for sex is to serve marriage And God's design for marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life. Uh, In my life, I've married 10 people, including my two sisters. Uh, As in, I've been the celebrant at 10 weddings. I probably could have said that different. Um, But before you get to the rings and the vows and the, you know, the vows, the rings, the kisses, all of that sort of stuff, uh, in the marriage service, I talk about the purpose of marriage. And I I do it in the words of Jesus. My uh, things died on me, Andy. I'll flick over to you. Uh, here's what Jesus says from Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6. He says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is a very different view of what marriage is to what our culture says. Uh, I feel, um, this might feel like a bit of a caricature, but I feel like for a lot of people in our culture, marriage is kind of publicly sharing before your friends and family that you have romantic and erotic love for this person for as long as you have it. This is saying marriage is a commitment between one man and one woman who leave their family to start a new family, and they join in this lifelong commitment to serve each other. More than that, God joins them together, did you see? What God has joined together, let no one separate. A marriage is not simply two people deciding that they're going to do this thing. God is involved and joins these two people to be married, according to the Bible. And part of this unity is that they unite physically. Uh, Sex is designed by God to serve marriages by being a little bit like superglue. Because in sex, you get as close as physically possible to another human being. I mean, you share bodily fluids. In this moment of deep intimacy, and it superglues you to your spouse at a kind of chemical, biological, physical, emotional level. 
So the place for sex in God's design is marriage, and the reason for sex in God's design is to serve marriages, to, to build unity, to keep so that this, the spouses can keep loving and serving each other. But it goes beyond that, of course. There's, there's kids and welcoming children into the world. And even bigger than that, marriage is actually a signpost that points to how God loves his people like a husband loves their wife better than the best human husband ever loved their wife. Marriage is a sign of God's unending and perfect love for his people. And human marriages are designed to point to the greatest marriage there is, the marriage between Jesus and the church. And the intimacy of sex is designed to point to the depth of relationship that we'll share with God in heaven. And so when we don't misuse sex, when we don't express our sexual desires against God's design... It points to, it gets us ready for it, it makes us long for and look forward to the fuller, greater intimacy, which marriage and sex has only ever been a signpost for. Next slide, Andy. And so what you see is God is kind enough to tell us his design for human sexuality. But more than that, God is kind enough to regain good when people reject his design for sex. When sex goes wrong and it's immoral and it's harmful, when we ignore God's design and come up with our own ways to do sex, God is kind enough to to retrieve, to, to salvage, to regain some good out of the pain and the confusion and the shame that we cause ourselves and others. And I think that's what these four cases are about, that in each God is retrieving some good. They're not good. You know, rape is never good, for example. It's a horrific evil. What's good is God's design, but God salvages. He, he regains some good when people reject his design. So let's, you know, let's quickly go through them. First scenario, what's good in this scenario? Well, I think it's that the wife's reputation is restored, uh, she's experienced the, ma- the huge shame of this accusation that she's cheated on her husband before marriage. If she hasn't, it's good for everybody to know that so her reputation is restored. And not only hers, but her parents too, which I think is why it's so public at the front gate and they're showing the cloth. This is not a private domestic dispute. This impacts the reputation and lives of this family before the whole community. And I also think there's a good for the husband because it promotes the husband's faithfulness to his marriage commitment. He found something he disliked about his wife, but so what? He needs to honour the commitment that he made to her. I think if this case wasn't here, he would have a legal loophole for him to marry, have sex once, and then divorce any woman he wanted. But he needs to man up and keep the commitment that he's made to his wife. What about the other end of the spectrum? When the wife has sex before she's married, how is that good? What's the good that God's bringing out of that? Well, I think it's that evil is purged so other people in ancient Israel don't copy her. Uh, Her sexual sin has caused great harm, and so she's killed so her behavior doesn't cause more harm, and so it doesn't infect the community and become widespread and become copied by the rest of the men and women in Israel. I think you get a similar thing in the second scenario. Uh, our, our culture tells us, you can find this on the internet, our culture tells us that 
affairs are good for your marriage. Uh, there's websites where you can log in and go and have an affair with someone in your local area. And they tell us that affairs are good for a marriage and adultery is good for your marriage. But actually, adultery destroys marriages and ruins lives and families. And so, again, this couple is stopped from causing more damage. And it's stopped from this behavior being copied in Israel. And the same thing, third scenario, the same thing for this engaged woman and the man, if, if the engaged woman joins in, but it protects the unwilling woman, the victim of rape. She is the victim of rape, and so she's not blamed. And it's really clear that it's not her fault. And her reputation is restored, and she gets justice. How many victims of rape in our country would love to see justice? She gets justice, and she's cared for by her community. And the marriage that she's been pledged into, that can continue. She can continue to get married to the man she was pledged to. What about the fourth one? Again, I think this is the hardest one of all. I think it forces the man to take sex seriously. Um, He's raped this woman and treated her as an object with no intention to marry her or protect her. But if he's going to have sex with her, which God designed to unite a couple in marriage, then he needs to learn to do all the other things that come with marriage too, like service and sacrifice and devotion and commitment and love and providing and protecting. And so he becomes married to learn how to love his wife. And it also, I think, protects the woman in a really strange way. Uh, She'd be at risk of that First scenario, uh, the verse 20 situation, she's not a virgin. She can't come into a a marriage as a virgin, but that's through no fault of her own. Marriage protects her from that situation. Plus also in this culture of arranged marriages, I think it's unlikely that another man would now marry her and so it secures her a marriage. And in this patriarchal culture, this is a very patriarchal culture, um, For better or worse, it just is. Um, That's just what this culture is. And in that kind of a culture, you need a man to protect and provide for you if you're a woman. And she gets a husband that will do that, though I have my doubts about how well he will do that. Uh, It's so strange. It is so foreign. Uh, But can you see God's kind enough to tell us his design for human sex and even to regain good when people reject his design for sex? And there is lots here that doesn't sit well with us. Um, I'm sure there is. Uh, Partly that's because this is one way to retrieve good in one culture. Maybe you can see better ways to do it. Uh, We do have to remember this comes from 1400 BC, three and a half thousand years ago. Uh, So our culture is very different. You know, for instance, our culture is not a patriarchal culture like this was. uh, And I kind of can't even imagine what that culture would be like and why it would be that way. But it is, you know, I guess... Imagining a culture three and a half thousand years ago that's not patriarchal is like imagining if our culture didn't have money or didn't have employment. Like I can't even imagine a culture that's like that. where It's so just how things work. Um, so partly this is so long ago, so different. And of course, we don't understand everything about that culture like God does. But partly this doesn't sit well because I'm impacted by my culture. Uh, we're impacted by our culture, we, the culture that we swim in and have lots of blind spots. So third question, why is God's design so different to our cultures? I think it's because our culture can't see or rejects much of God's good design. 
Our culture has been running a social experiment for the last, about the last 60 years called the Sexution. Uh, you know, Woodstock in the 60s and those kinds of things. And it's promised sexual liberation and freedom and fulfillment. And you see the difference between God and our culture in the messages that our culture promotes and the questions that our culture who I have sex with. And sex is about love. And marriage is about love. And love is love. And people need sex. It's a basic human need. And it's harmful to suppress our desires. And it's just sex. It's, it doesn't mean anything. And my happiness is the most important thing. And if things go bad, I need to look after number one. I need to look after myself. And I'm not hurting anybody. So there's no problem. These are the messages that we're bombarded with. And I'm sure you can think of many others that you throw into the mix. And it leads to a radically different approach to sex and drawing different lines about what's good and what's not good, what's moral and what's immoral. And we hear this all the time. And of course, it impacts us. If you're here and you're a Christian, we start to believe it. We start to forget that God our Father cares for us because he made us and he owns us. And he's kind enough to save us from the massive pain and confusion and shame that comes when we misuse sex. And God is not simply kind enough to make a design for human sex. He's not simply kind enough to tell us his design for human sex. He's not simply kind enough to salvage some good when we reject his design for human sex. Most extraordinary of all, God is kind enough to regain the people who reject his design for sex. He regains good and he regains the people who reject his design. Come to this passage. Come to 1 Corinthians 6, the other part of the Bible that Adam read out for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Look at verse 9. Or do you not know... That wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you know, do you know what I reckon the two greatest words are there? were and but is there anyone in this room who hasn't failed when it comes to sex Uh, my greatest regret in my life i've shared this a couple of times at salt my greatest regret in life is that as a teenager and in my early years as a christian i was addicted to pornography Uh, and i remember uh, when i became a leader i first started leading bible studies and i was the vice president of the christian uni group and even then i was still watching pornography uh, and it massively damaged the way, it massively damaged me, it massively damaged the way that I treated and viewed women, uh, and I was full of shame, but I couldn't stop, and to be honest, I didn't really want to stop. Uh, in God's kindness, he's, he's brought some massive wins in my life, and it's not a struggle for me in the same way. Um, I don't really want to look at pornography anymore, I actually find it really sad that such a thing exists. But it takes constant vigilance for me. Uh, And it's not like, great, I've conquered lust now. It's just been replaced by new temptations to sexual sin. 
Um, I've realized recently that the beach is dangerous for my soul. Uh, and I'm only godly at the beach when I go to the beach if I pray before, during, and after. But God is so kind to regain some good when we reject his design and to regain us. Look at verse 11 again. And that is what some of you were. That's what I was. That's what some of us were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That's incredible news. Let's, uh, let me take those three words there backwards. Justified. Justified means being declared innocent before God. Uh, declared innocent, even though you are guilty, declared not guilty because Jesus' perfect obedience is credited to us. A sanctified means that we are holy in God's sight, that who we were, the, the shame, the sin that we've done, does not define us anymore. We are holy in God's sight and not smothered in guilt and washed. We are cleansed. We are freed. We're no more drowning in shame. Uh, Our culture promises that if you do sex your own way, not God's way, you'll experience freedom and fulfillment and you'll thrive. And that's a promise that I think our culture has never once delivered on. But God delivers freedom and cleansing and comfort and news that is profoundly good, that every sexual sin can be forgiven and forgotten in the name of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, that every sin, regardless of what it is, can be forgiven and forgotten in the name of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. God is kind enough to regain good and to regain the people who reject his design, to rescue and redeem and renew us, Uh, God loves you enough to accept you and forgive you as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And so if you trust Jesus, you genuinely are forgiven and washed and free. Free to live as you were designed to live by the Spirit of God. The, The Holy Spirit is actually in us as Christians, transforming us and restoring us and renewing us to be who God always meant us to be. You can become the true you now. And it looks like verse 18. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Uh, Four things stand out to me here. First one is that sexual immorality is still really serious to God. Uh, In fact, it's deadly serious because it costs the life of God's son to regain us from that. Um, I'm shocked by how intense the stoning the men and women to death back in the Old Testament. I'm shocked by how intense that is. But I think it's partly because I don't realize how serious sin is, that actually every sin deserves death. That's the right punishment for sin. And our sin cost death, Jesus' death in our place. It cost the life of God's Son to regain me from my sin. But second thing I notice is that my body is not my body to do what I want with. It's God's body. Uh, twice it's God's body because God made it and then God regained it. 
And the third thing I noticed is how community this is. Uh, you can't really see it in English, but all the yous there are plural. This is a community that Paul, the guy who wrote this, Apostle Paul, it's a community of people that Paul is writing to. It's not just individuals scattered all over the place. It's, it's a community that needs to flee sexual immorality and honor God. And the fourth thing I noticed is that we need to run away from something and run to something else. We need to flee from sexual immorality. And of course, flee means to play with, to skirt the edges of, to test, to experiment, to give in to. No, that's not what flee means, is it? Flee means the opposite. It means escape, bolt, run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. Uh, Another passage in Ephesians chapter 5 tells us there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among God's people. Not even a hint. And I think the sad fact is that is not the case at Salt Church. And that is not the case in my life. But it really should be. But we're not only told to stop doing something, we're also told to replace it with something new. If you try to just stop sinning, but you don't replace it with something new, with something godly, it's usually pretty useless and doomed to fail. The new thing that we need to do is to honor God with our bodies, to go out of our way to honor and respect and admire and love God's design and live it, to want to live this way, or at the least to want to want to. Um, Let me wrap up. Let me speak to you. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're kind of here going, what the heck did I just stumble into? Uh, If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're exploring all of this. Uh, Let me encourage you to ask yourself this question. Does our culture really deliver what it promises? Because there's an exciting vision of good and free and liberating sex, and it's so widely accepted that God's design is being called harmful, as if doing life God's way could ever hurt you. The question I want to ask you is, is that true? Because I reckon you'll find, if you're honest, that buried in this great, exciting vision is the reality of massive pain and confusion and shame that our culture simply cannot fix. If anything, it's making it worse. And that is radically different from the God who loves us enough to accept us and forgive us as we are, but who loves us too much to leave us there. And can I say, if you're a Christian here tonight and you do trust Jesus and follow Jesus, let me encourage you to pray a whatever-it-takes kind of prayer. Pray a whatever-it-takes kind of prayer this week. Whatever it takes, God, make me holy. Whatever it takes, help me kill sexual sin. Whatever it takes, help me honor you with my body. Whatever it takes, help me to be who you made and saved me to be. Whatever it takes, help me want to. Whatever it takes, help me want to want to. Whatever it takes, help me trust that you have a better design for life and love and marriage and sex. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, Whatever it takes, please do this work among us who trust in you.
please may it be true of us at one point, Lord, that there was not even a hint of sexual immorality among us. Please would you do that work in us because we know that we are not strong enough to do it ourselves. Please help us to put sexual sin to death, to flee from it, not to toy with it or experiment or excuse it, but to flee from it and to honor you with our bodies, with your bodies that you've entrusted to us. And we pray for those here who are exploring you. We pray that even in the midst of such a massively intense topic, that you would show yourself, uh, that you would cause those of us who are questioning and exploring you, you would show them how good you are, good enough to love us and forgive us, and so good and so kind that you would want to see us change and you would be at work to change us. We praise you for this, Lord. Amen.